decided that uh, a lady was worthy of our attention and attraction or someone in particular really liked her, we, we might have teased him and said, you worship the ground she walks on, right? That expression. Well, there's a negative version of that if you're an ancient Israelite. If something really terrible happened, you curse the ground on which it happened to, to show how horrible it is. Well, that's what David does here. Mountains of Gilboa. This is where Saul and Jonathan most likely were, were struck down. May you have neither dew nor rain, may no showers fall on your terrace fields, for there the shield of the mighty was despised, the shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. Now, I don't think David literally had in mind that in one particular area there would be no rain, or hence no fertility, like a, a curse. Of course, God can hold off the rain in any given area if he so chooses, but I think the idea is that we're to see this death in David's mind and his heart is so offensive, so striking, so worthy of condemnation that he wants to curse the ground on which it has taken place. Now, one of the reasons that this death is actually particularly tragic is that Saul is no longer the Lord's anointed Quick uh, Hebrew, Greek, very important Bible lesson that this is actually a bit... Uh, there was a lecture at Bible college that said there's a special place reserved in hell for preachers who mention Greek or Hebrew in their sermons. But I've already done it, so if I'm there anyway, I might as well do it. The Lord's anointed, right? The word in Hebrew is Mashiach, which sounds like Messiah. And in Greek, that same word is Christos from where we get Christ. Now, what's a... What's a Mashiach? What's a Messiah? Well, it's someone literally who's had oil poured on their head. That's what anointing means, covered in usually oil. Why are we talking about people with oil poured on their head? Well, back in the day, that was kind of like the symbol to say, this person is set aside for an office that God has ordained, usually a king. As a matter of fact, our current queen, Queen Elizabeth, at her coronation, it's a while, while ago now, had some oil poured on her head. She was anointed. She was Mashiached in order to be queen. And so it is with Saul. And there's this cool play on words that takes place. You see, it says, um, David laments that Saul's shield is no longer rubbed with oil. But the word in the original is, it's uh, anointed, Mashiach, with oil. It's a little play on words to say, he is no longer the Messiah. He is no longer the Lord's Christ. Uh, and so, given that God would ideally express his rule through his king, through his anointed. Well, now that the anointed's dead, there's something fitting about associating that with a curse of God that David's now calling down on the land. Uh, now, when I say Saul is anointed, Mashiach, Christ, I'm sure you all understand this, but, you know, bears just mentioning, he's a Christ, not the Christ, the scriptures later on speak of someone who's not just a descendant of David, a Mashiach, an anointed, but someone who's the descendant of David, the eternal ruler of God's eternal kingdom, which of course is Jesus, but I'm getting ahead of myself. After he curses the ground, then we have within David's lament some words of eulogy. Eulogy literally means to speak favourably or to praise someone or something. The eulogy David gives is not at all a balanced assessment of Saul. A eulogy isn't a balanced assessment of a person. It's uh, praise for the good that was lost. And that's really important to remember because if you know anything about Saul, there was a, a lot of stuff 
that was not praiseworthy about Saul. As a matter of fact, the reason he died is because God had removed him from uh, being king of Israel. But here's how the eulogy goes, as David gives voice to the good that now has been lost. Verse 22, from the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, the sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and admired, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. Now, once you remember that in this time of, uh, of God's history, God, the history of Israel, uh, the job of the Lord's anointed in particular was to rid Israel of the threat of conquest by foreign enemies, well, then you see that bravery and battle readiness, not going to shrink back from the blood and guts of war, that's a really positive thing. That's really praiseworthy. And uh, therefore, it's a, it's a great tragedy to, to see the loss of those qualities in, in Saul and Jonathan's death. And so, verse 24, the command of the new king comes, have I put it there? Daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Now, of course, you and I know, as I said, there are many shortcomings for Saul and his kingship, and those shortcomings involved him taking rather than giving. That's what we're told all the way back in 1 Samuel 8. But yet again, a eulogy isn't supposed to be the balance assessment, but something that gives voice to the good that has now been lost. Saul did obviously provide at least some basic level of economic stability during his kingship so that the daughters of Israel are adorned with the ornaments. Because he wasn't afraid to go into battle against the enemies of God's people. It's probably the reason that happened. And with that, we come to what, on first reading, you might rightly assume is the end of the lament. Because it has that refrain, I'll put it back there, how the mighty have fallen. That idea would have been a nice idea to, to close the psalm. But you see, it wouldn't be just enough to give voice to communal grief. That's important, but it's not enough. It's also right that David gives words to his own personal grieving. Not so much in the death of Saul, significant as that was, of course, but now in the death of his dear friend, Jonathan. At the beginning of the lament, David said that a gazelle, or perhaps a, a glorified one, lay slain on Israel's heights. We're right to see that as referring to the Lord's anointed. So the death of Saul, Saul is lying slain. But now David makes it clear that his personal grief is not surprisingly over Jonathan, the one who was his friend. Jonathan, not a gazelle, but Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother, you were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. And then, of course, we get the real end of the lament. How the mighty have fallen, the weapons of war have perished. We know from 1 Samuel that Jonathan was fiercely loyal to David. Even though Jonathan was the crown prince, he was next in line if he wanted to be king, he renounced his own claim to the throne and instead made a covenant with David and he said he knew that David would in reality be the next king and the true king of Israel, the one chosen according to God's own heart. And yet Jonathan, like David, had not raised his hand 
against Saul. He would not strike down the Lord's anointed. He remained faithful to his father Saul to the point even of dying with him in the same battle. Guys, this is what stings here, I think. If I had to guess, I reckon David surely had in mind that the day would come when he would be king of Israel and who do you think his immediate right-hand man would be but his best friend, Jonathan, the champion of the bow. And he'd have the joy of sharing that rule with Jonathan as his right-hand man. David no doubt grieves the good of what was lost as well as the good that otherwise might have been. Uh, I've seen this before. Many years ago, I attended a funeral of a man who died likely from a heart attack, if memory serves correct, and he was actually just a few months away from his retirement. And I remember his wife saying words to the effect of, I was really looking forward to that next phase of our, our life together and I feel robbed that he's been taken at such a time. So even when the death isn't cutting off the possibility of a more ideal relationship, it was a wonderful relationship, it still cuts off the possibility of enjoying that relationship longer. David's relationship with Jonathan was an ideal friendship and he rightly gives voice to the loss of potential of enjoying that relationship any longer. And therefore, friends, I've got to say, as an important aside that, that sadly does have to be mentioned, it is a dreadful thing that some people who have absorbed the current thinking of our rather debased culture try to make the argument that David's words here imply that he had a homosexual relationship with Jonathan. Like you'll find on the first webpage that came up in my Google search on this particular issue. It is clearly a stupid argument... For a start, the Levitical law points out that it's detestable for a man to have sexual relations with a man as he would a woman. So if David thought there was an even, even a possibility that the whole of Judah, who he wants, he's giving this lament, lament to, possibly even the whole of Israel, would read his words about Jonathan's love being you know, more wonderful than that of women, they would read that as, 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 as implying homosexuality, there's no way he'd ever have written such words for public consumption. What David is obviously speaking about is this wonderful thing we were used to be allowed to have. It was called a friendship. And it's a really good thing and it's a gift of God. And the thing that makes it stand out, probably and ironically, if I'm right, is the fact that there is no complicating sexual element between this man and his other male friend that there otherwise would be, and in David's case there definitely is, between him and a woman. And I've read things, would you believe, by same-sex attracted Christians, both male and female and both within the last year, who said that one of the most wonderful and helpful things for them in their journey and in their struggle have been the friendships that they have had with people of the same sex where they yet understand there's no sort of romantic element possible because, you know, their friends are, are, are heterosexual or straight. David is telling anyone who would listen, just as we ought to tell anyone who would listen when, this, when it comes our time, about the loss of a wonderful blessing from God that we all know as friendship. I love women and I love female friends and I love men and male 
friends, and you probably rightly discern, as would be the same for you as for me, there are just certain words and behaviours that I will do and say when I'm with male-only friends that I just wouldn't do and say when I was with female-only friends, and vice versa if you're, you're, you're a female. It's one of the wonderful things. You remove that sort of complicating uh, potential for romantic element, and, and there's, a, there's something wonderful about it. David laments this loss with Jonathan. But coming back to our passage, three times now we've heard the refrain, how the mighty have fallen. It's obvious that if David, the new Messiah, somehow had the power to reverse that reality that he rages against, that he most certainly would. In fact, we are right to have that as a strong thought when we read this lament, because if you've got an incredible memory, you remember all the way back in the opening of 1 Samuel, that God used a downtrodden and largely insignificant woman named Hannah to give a prophetic prayer that would determine much of the history of God's people that we read in these books. It's so like God to use the, the, the understated things. Remember Hannah, she couldn't get pregnant, she had Penina, was bagging around and she had the baby Samuel. Does this ring any bells for anyone, by the way? 1 Samuel, yeah, yeah. And in her praise of God, after the Lord opened her womb and she gave birth to Samuel, Hannah said, and this is the astounding thing, her prayer is prophetic, she said, the bows of the warriors are broken. And how right she was regarding Jonathan, who was a skilled archer. But she also said, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. We don't see that in David's lament, where's that? Two verses later, she said, the Lord brings death, Well, obviously that's happened here, how the mighty have fallen. But she also said he makes alive, he brings down to the grave and he raises up. Oh, are you going to see that in David's lament? And perhaps most importantly of all, she finished her prophetic prayer saying, he, God, will give strength to his king and exalt the horn, the horn being the symbol of power, of his anointed, literally of his Messiah, Mashiach. Jonathan loved David and laid down his own crown in order to honour him. If only David, as the Lord's anointed, had the power to affect God's rule where he not only brings down but also raises up. If only David had the power to raise up Jonathan from the grave so that he really then could rule at David's right side after David has been anointed the king of all Israel. But David was not only a Messiah, he was also a prophet. And he did see ahead to what was to come, that Israel's ultimate Messiah would himself be raised and would also have the power to grant resurrection to eternal life for those who love him. Jesus laments the reality of death even more than his predecessor, King David. And now that Jesus' kingdom has been inaugurated, it's only a matter of time before those who love him, even those who have fallen asleep in death, will be raised bodily with him to everlasting life. God's king, they're both David and, of course, much more Jesus, especially laments the death of those who love him and he will one day reverse the reality of death for them. It might be today. Could be in a thousand years, I don't know, but he will. 
The reason a Christian funeral is always just so much more satisfying than a non-Christian funeral is because despite the real grieving that God wants us to experience and gives words to, he doesn't like it, but it's important, despite the real grieving, we know and love the Lord and we know that the relationship of the deceased who knows and loves the Lord is not over. All that was good about them is not ultimately lost. As a matter of fact, all that was good about them is actually what remains and we'll get to enjoy for all eternity. When I preached this at uh, the night congregation last Sunday, I added a point here saying, even worse than the, 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 the funeral of those who don't have any hope, those who, who aren't, aren't united to the Lord, is for the young ones, you've got to remember I'm speaking to young men and women here, is those who will bury a spouse where they themselves know the Lord but their spouse does not. Uh, remember to keep impressing upon you young ones, the idea of dating and marrying non-Christians is not biblical. Marrying a non-Christian when you have the choice is also sinful. You might want to talk to me about that afterwards, feel free to do so. Uh, but keep impressing that on our younger marriageable people. By way of implication, in the case of King David, those who loved the king, like Jonathan, are those he deeply laments over their loss. In the case of Jesus, who's not just a Messiah, of course, but the Messiah, the Christ, whose horn has been exalted, those who love him will be raised up to rule with him for eternity. And love for Jesus, by the way, isn't just to think highly of Jesus or feel positive about him. That's not love for Jesus. It's to do what Jonathan did. Give up your own claim to the throne. Lay down your crown. Give up self-rule and to joyfully accept his rule over your life. He is king over your life. Jesus says, those who love me will obey my commands. Paul says, those who endure will also reign with him, 2 Timothy 2. For anyone here, by the way, I don't know everyone here, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, if you, by definition, you're, you're sort of still holding on to your own rule, your own crown, if you like. What possible good reason do you have for not giving it up and turning to Jesus? Stop, turn, follow Jesus. What good reason do you have for, for not doing that? You can turn to him in repentance and faith right now and you can look forward to an eternity with the people of the Lord and, more importantly, the Lord himself. Finally, we who are in Christ, we're not spared from the stings of death in the here and now, but, of course, we are spared from the ultimate sting of death, which, of course, the Bible will tell us is sin. Sin renders us liable to judgment. We die in sin, we face God in judgment. But the fact that Jesus' death removes all the penalty for our sin, past, present, future, means that the real sting of death, namely facing God in judgment for our sin, is totally and irreversibly taken away. So whilst we grieve, sometimes even deeply and bitterly, we don't yet grieve like the rest who have no hope. David taught God's people a wonderful lament that helps us also deal with grief. But on our side of the cross, the Apostle Paul has given us even better words with which we're actually instructed 
to encourage one another in the face of, of grieving. So rather than my usual practice of prayer, how I'd normally conclude a sermon, I'm going to conclude today's sermon with the very words given by the Apostle Paul for us to encourage one another as we endure times of grief for the departed. From 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning verse 13, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words, to which we say, Amen.